This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade, and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order. And I will tell you that code in just a moment, but I want to do another product highlight. And I can testify, as with the other ones, through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago, and I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there, so some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old, worn, frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts so they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, they have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 271 of Behind the Shield Podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I bring to you an incredible person, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Harold. Now, so many of the stories on here are so unique, but what's crazy about Steve's is he had a full career as a fighter pilot in the Air Force, and after retirement decided he was going to be a firefighter paramedic. So a very different perspective on our profession coming from that background. And on top of all that, he also created the Knights of Heroes Foundation, where he realized that there were children all over this country that were left motherless or fatherless after them being killed in combat or the associated diseases and mental health issues from a life of service. Uh, so he created a camp where these children could all come together and not only be amongst each other, but then have all these mentors take them through these incredible programs. So another incredible human being. Before we get to that interview, please, as I always say, every single episode, just take a moment and go to the app that you listen to this podcast on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love reading your feedback and then leave a rating. The five star ratings really do make us more visible so the people looking for a project like this are able to find it. And then take that social media, that demon social media that we hear so many terrible things about and use it for good. You can be such an incredible platform. So share these episodes, tell people about them, email people about them. If you work in higher up in a chain, tell everyone that's in your organization about these incredible men and women and their stories. This is a free library for you, the audience to use. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Harold. Enjoy.
So Steve, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm really excited about this. And I want to say thank you to Chris and Sam Adams, who uh, we had on recently for connecting us as well. Definitely. Those are some amazing guys. All right. So first question, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I live in Windsor, Colorado, which is kind of a suburb of Fort Collins, north of Denver. Brilliant. Um, were you born there? No, I was actually born in Germany. Oh, really? Yeah, my dad was in the army, so um, we lived all over the place um, throughout uh, my formative years, and then I ended up going to high school in Colorado Springs and then college up at Colorado State. Beautiful. Whereabouts in Germany? Uh, Heidelberg. Great. Now, I always ask people this. They've traveled a lot when they were younger. When you moved to the U.S., and again, this isn't demonizing American culture, but having traveled so much, did you find you had a very different perspective of kind of just worldviews than some of your classmates that hadn't left the, the country yet? Absolutely. I mean, I, I see it in my kids as well. It's the more you travel, the smaller the world gets. And what seems like a million miles away really isn't that far away. And it, it does change your perspective. And especially just experiencing the different cultures and, and the behaviors and the way people treat each other in different countries and coming back to the United States, it does give you a, a, a new way of viewing, viewing our culture and the world in general. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I love this country. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful country, but there's that kind of kickback. Like if you make any kind of criticisms or say, well, this country's actually doing this particular thing better, there's that kind of pushback like, well, if you don't like it, get out versus <laughs> being proud of where you are and saying, look, we can make this even better if we take this from Denmark and this from, from the UK. Um, so it's interesting being non-American, having to kind of tiptoe you around progress and, and innovation without getting kickback of, you know, well, why don't you just go home then, Brit? <laughs> uh, that, I could see that. And it's amazing that different parts of the country do things so differently as well. But I mean, there's certainly things we can learn from other parts of the world. And, and I would say the people that tell you to go somewhere else are the ones that haven't been anywhere else. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not going to anyway, so it's a waste of breath. <laughs> um, all right. So you said your dad was in the army. What, what kind of role did he have in, in that armed service? Um, he was a armor initially, um, served in Vietnam, and then um, went into more of the logistics side of things as he um, progressed through his career. Right. Now, we talk about the, the mental health side on the show as well. Did he ever struggle with anything? Did he ever talk to you about kind of his uh, his mental journey of, of being in not only uh, the service but being deployed? Um, he didn't really. I mean, he never talked to us about his time in Vietnam. That was one thing that we just didn't talk about. He also served in the Gulf War, um, which was a, a wildly different role than what he did in Vietnam. And that he was very open about. Right. And then you, your dad was in the army. What did your mom do? Uh, she stayed at home with us. Uh, I have a brother and a sister as well. So she was a stay at home mom. Brilliant. Okay. So Obviously, you ended up doing a profession where you need to not only be fit, but certain weight as well. Were you uh, um, an athlete or a sportsman when you were at school? I uh, wrestled in um, starting junior high all the way through high school, did some track as well. Um, a little bit of wrestling in college just with the club, but I've always been a runner. That's really been what's um, 
you know, my, the cornerstone of my physical fitness has always been with running. Right. Now, what is it about running you think that you liked over, say, team sports or combat sports? Uh, I mean, I with wrestling and, and running, it's kind of just you. You know, you don't have to – which is maybe kind of self-centered, but I really just enjoyed being out there on my own and kind of doing my own thing, and that kind of translated into flying a single-seat um, aircraft in the Air Force. I just really like – you know, just time with myself and the running is just, it's an escape and you're just alone with your thoughts and it's a fantastic way to, to stay in shape. And unlike bike riding where it takes four hours to get a good workout, you know, you can go out for a 45 minute run and, and it's, it's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well then with your dad being in the army, tell me your kind of journey from school and choosing the air force. Well, um, I think anyone who grew up in the military family will attest that service, um, the desire to serve, it becomes ingrained in you um, as you grow up in the military. And it almost is as if there's really nothing else. It's all you really want to do. So um, my sister joined the Navy for a little while. My brother joined the Army. And then I joined the Air Force. And to be honest with you, my dad just said, don't join the Army. Um, It's kind of funny is uh, there's that rivalry, but you know, uh, the air force just always appealed to me because flying airplanes was always something I wanted to do. Now your, your journey in there, I mean, and obviously we hear that, you know, very, very select few people make it into the cockpit. So what attributes of your kind of upbringing do you then, um, uh, God, I'm struggling for the right word now. tied into you having all the skills needed to, to become a pilot? Um, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of it is luck and timing really. Um, when I joined the air force in, um, I graduated from college in 93, you know, it was the end of the Gulf war. There's a huge drawdown. There were no pilot slots for anyone, um, at the end of 93. So I, I, when I started in the air force, I was working the command post and then, then they realized they cut too many pilots and they just opened the floodgates. So timing was great for me to get into pilot training while I was on active duty. And then once in pilot training, you know, uh, we had a lot of opportunity for, for fighter cockpits. And so it goes back to timing. So there, there were certainly better candidates in the years prior to me going into pilot training that didn't have the opportunity to fly fighters, but I just got lucky and, and with timing and all, there were pilot slots available and there were fighter cockpits available because of the shortage. But I mean, growing up, you know, my dad um, was a great role model and just um, learning to pursue your dreams and having someone there that can tell you, you know, just set your goals and, and work hard to attain them. Um, that's really what, there really isn't anything that you can't accomplish that you set your mind to. It was kind of the mindset that I went to pilot training with. Right now, physically, what are how do they test for the bar as far as being a pilot? Cause obviously you can't carry extra weight and you know, you have to be able to deal with the G force and you know, I'm sure the endurance side is pretty taxing as well. So what are, how do they test physically to make sure you guys can cut it as far as the, the, uh, the entry and you know, are there are any kind of annual standards that you have to maintain. Well, every air force member has to pass the PFT, the physical fitness test and, and, that includes running, push-ups, pull-ups, 
sit up. So everyone, there's a, there's a bar that's set for just to, to serve in, in the military period. And as long as you meet that, um, there really isn't any additional endurance requirements or strength requirements for um, going into pilot training. But once you're, you take the fighter track, then they send you down to the centrifuge. And that's really kind of um, the make or break for a lot of folks on whether or not they're going to be able to do the fighter um, uh, track is whether they can get through the centrifuge where they put you in the little capsule and spin you around and, and make you pull nine G's. So if you can't stay awake for that, then they send you down a different path. Right. And are there physiological attributes that you can improve to, to be able to deal with that? Or is that more genetic at the end of the day? Um, I mean, the tall, skinny, actually endurance athletes struggle a little bit because their their blood pressure is so low when you're in really good shape and your heart's strong and your resting blood pressure is, you know, in the... 110 over 60 range. Um, it actually is tough to to be able to maintain the blood flow into your brain when you're pulling that kind of G's. And and the people that do really well are, um, I mean, the thicker folks, you know, who just have, um, you know, they're. It's just easier for them to to keep the blood pressure up in their brain and they stay awake longer. But you get a long, lanky person, it's kind of difficult for them to to withstand the g-forces so you know people used to always joke that people with you know um you know littered arteries or smokers and you know and don't work out a lot they have a resting g-tolerance higher than higher than most people who are in shape not advocating that lifestyle but um, <laughs> tends to be you know the folks that that really don't take good care of themselves do pretty good under g's um but it, it there is an endurance piece of it you know um it is exact you know, tasking to pull a lot of G's for a long time. So you do have to have some endurance. Um, and, and a lot of it's technique and they teach you how to, how to withstand the forces. Brilliant. Now I know as well, they, they say that, um, women are doing very, very well as pilots. What is it, you know, versus, you know, some branch of the armed forces where they're still struggling to get the, the female candidates through their whole selection process. What is it about flying you think that, that makes women, you know, such good pilots as well? Um, I mean, really the most difficult thing about flying, especially fighters where they're just, it's multitasking and being able to handle a lot of things at one time. Cause it's one thing to fly the plane that becomes second nature, but when you have a radar to work and a targeting pod and radios and keeping situational awareness on where your flight members are and you're doing all that while you're thinking about where your bomb's going to drop. And so it's being able to do multiple things at one time. The task management um, is really what makes people fantastic pilots. Right. Now we're going to obviously talk about uh, Major Troy Gilbert, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Did you guys meet early in your career or was that later on? Um, it was later on. So we met when I was stationed at Luke Air Force Base, um, and that would have been in 2003. Um, so we served together at Luke as instructor pilots from 2003 until I moved in 2006. Okay. And then 2006 um, uh, was when when uh, the incident happened. So if you want to kind of tell people the listening the story leading up to that and then and then the events of his death and then obviously then we'll talk about the sad part about after his death as well. 
Um, well, Troy was, he was one of those people that, you know, he just makes you feel good when you're around him. He, he's a devout Christian, amazing family man. Um, and to be honest with you, I tell people, I, I didn't, I mean, we worked together, we were in the same squadron and, um, you know, we would hang out at work afterwards, but you know, we, he had really, really good friends that were, um, I, I honestly, we didn't do a whole lot of stuff outside of work, but he, he kind of, he was the guy you were super excited to see. So, and it's a testament to just what an amazing person he was. It's someone who wasn't necessarily his best friend, but we knew each other. It, it altered my life completely. Um, but so he was an amazing, amazing person, a fantastic and very talented um, fighter pilot. Um, so we served together as instructors at Luke for for three years. Um, I PCSed um, or moved up to Colorado to work at the Air Force Academy in the summer of 2006. And then at that time, he deployed to Iraq um, to be an exec, um, executive aide to the um, a general who was taking command over in Iraq. Um, and while he was over there, um, he was flying combat missions with one of the deployed units um, uh, in Iraq. He was on a mission um, to support some special operations um, troops who had had a, there were, so their helicopter crashed, um, in Iraq and they brought in Troy and his wingmen to, to fend off, um, some, um, insurgents that were attacking their position. And it was so close quarters that he, all he could really use was his gun, um, because dropping a 500 pound bomb right next to friendlies, um, is not something that we do. So he was using his gun to try to, there were convoys coming in to, um, to attack the, the friendly. So he was using his gun to try to fend them off. And he ended up on um, his last strafing pass, um, just he got in too close and, and actually hit the ground on his recovery. So um, he wasn't shot down or anything like that. He just, um, they say it's called target fixation and he ended up um, hitting the ground during the recovery. Um, and the, uh, Delta force team that, um, he was supporting, they attribute their survival to what Troy did that day. Yeah. Now, sadly they weren't able to get to him, were they? So the, the insurgents actually got his body, but I think the story of, of when his body finally came back is pretty powerful. So if, if you wouldn't mind kind of continuing the story, I think that would be a, you know, a way of paying tribute to, to that part. Um, like I said, um, his body wasn't, re um, was, was taken by the insurgents. Um, what they, you know, did have from the crash site, you know, articles of clothing and so forth. They, um, did a ceremony at Arlington for his family with that. Several years later, um, they were able to recover, um, some bone fragments that they did a second ceremony with in Arlington. And then just about two, two and a half years ago, um, the Air Force never gave up. It's a testament to how um, we take care of, of those who have sacrificed. They continued the search for, for Troy's remains for the entire time. They never stopped searching. And roughly 12 years later, they recovered um, all of his remains. And they did a final um, burial at Arlington. Um, I believe, I may have my dates off a little bit. It was around 2000 and um, 17, 2018. 
See, and I think that's that's incredible. It's a tragic, tragic story. I mean, it's a story of heroism. You know, there's no question about it. Um, but for the men and women, you know, under the Air Force umbrella that kept fighting until he was brought home, I think is absolutely incredible. Without a doubt. Right. So then you lost Troy. So tell me about now your journey from, you know, that moment through to when you had you know, the idea to, to do something in his memory. So I, I was living in Colorado um, uh, when he was killed. Um, I went down to Phoenix for the memorial service. And um, I can just remember sitting in the service um, when his family came in. He had five kids. So he had um, two boys, um, Boston and Grayson, who were the same exact age as my two boys. And then he had three younger girls, a set of twins, and then uh, um, another daughter. So I just remember seeing his family walk in, and there were pictures of Troy, and there was one in particular at the front there of him, you know, on a camping trip with his boys. And, um, when they came in, I just kept thinking to myself, well, you know, what happens now? And, you know, who takes the boys camping and fishing and hunting and all those things that Troy used to, to love to do with his boys. Um, so throughout the whole, I really felt called to do something. Um, and so I, I brought those thoughts home and kind of stewed on them and, and it just continued to, one of those things you know it just grew every after that service I got home and it just um it started to consume my thoughts and um I just I came up with the idea well maybe we should do a camp um during the summer and bring the boys out and and do those things that Troy would have done with him bring them camping and shooting and you know bows and arrows and rafting and horseback riding do all those those things that typically fathers do with their kids. So I called a, a few friends and said, Hey, what do you guys think about this idea of doing this camp? And I didn't know anything about youth protection training and state licensing requirements. And, uh, thank goodness. One of my friends was, um, pretty high level in the boy scouts. And he explained to me that you just don't go do that. Um, you can't just take a bunch of kids and go grab tents and go camping with them. So he actually signed us up as a Boy Scout troop, and we we utilized uh, Boy Scout facilities for probably the first um, eight nine years of the program. So that first year um, of our organization, we um, we didn't know who would want to come. I hadn't even talked to Troy's wife Ginger about it and whether the boys would even want to go. So we we put all the things in place. And uh, started contacting chaplains from, you know, army bases to see if they had kids that they thought might want to come out to the program. Um, so that was kind of how we got the first year started, um, was just kind of reaching out and going, hey, is there anyone that would want to be a part of this? And then once the, the groundwork was laid, I, I got a hold of Ginger and said, hey, would you know, Boston and Grayson want to come out to this thing? And she agreed. And, and that was our first year. Yeah, because I can imagine the you know, the number. I know we far surpassed, um, you know, what we lost as far as civilians and first responders in nine eleven. So thousands and thousands of service people lost. So that mean you know it must mean tens of thousands of children probably left behind. Absolutely. Um, it, what's difficult with a program like this is first we didn't know you know 
is anyone going to come? So before you invite them, you got to make sure you have the groundwork because if, if, if you invite them and then you say, well, actually it didn't work out, that'd be kind of sad. So we laid all the groundwork, we set it all up. We, um, did some fundraising and I actually, um, it's hard to raise money for a program that doesn't exist. So we actually, I was prepared to do like a home equity line of credit to pay for the first year, but we got really lucky. We were blessed to have people who were, who put the money forward for us to pay for that first year. And then once the groundwork was laid, then we sent out the invites. And that first year we had 16 kids that, that came out. Um, and, uh, I thought it was a total disaster from my perspective, you know, but the feedback was incredible. I mean, the kids absolutely loved it. But when you're looking at the logistics side of it and like, oh, we were late picking them up or it rained on this day and 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 I, you're looking at all the details and you kind of miss, you know, the forest through the trees where the kids actually really had a fantastic time. And we're like, wow, well, let's do this again. And then it just uh, it grew from there. Um, and and so it was an exciting journey for sure. Now, early on, what was some of the, were there any kind of stories that stuck in your mind as far as, you know, the, the kids' perception and, and how it, it helped? Um, well, I mean, I, what was really stuck out in my mind was the trust that the moms had in us. Um, I mean, if you can imagine uh, having lost, you know, husband and you've got two, you got, or just, you've got kids to raise and, and, and what the moms told us and they continue to tell us is they just felt like, well, what am I going to do now? You know, who's, who's going to teach them these things that my husband would have taught them. And, um, and, and so having these moms, we've never met, um, bring their kids to Colorado because they came from all over the country. We just have a, you know, there's a handful from Colorado, but most of them came from out of state and for them to come up and just drop their kids off and trust that we're going to take care of them. I mean, the burden of responsibility was somewhat overwhelming. Um, but it was, uh, I mean that first year and it's nerve wracking too, cause I had never, I had never worked with kids who had lost anyone before. So you're kind of tiptoeing and, you know, don't want to say the wrong thing. And, and really it's, they just want someone there to listen. So, you know, we took the mindset of if they want to talk, we're here, we're not going to prod or anything like that. And we just want to be good examples for them. Let's just go have a good time. And so, um, yeah, that first year, just seeing the kids, especially the kids that are, had real recent losses. I mean, that first year we had, um, you know, in 2007, it was in the height of, you know, some of the worst losses we had experienced. And these kids are, you know, six months, a year away from having lost their father. It was um, extremely difficult for them. And we just, we just really wanted to just be there for them and just, and just let them relax and have a good time and know that they were surrounded by kids who were in the same situation. And that, that really is where we saw so much of the healing is when you bring these kids together and they can relax in the atmosphere, knowing that all of kids who are there today have lost their father as well, then they can let their guard down. Cause most of these kids are, you know, they're going to school and they're the only, they're the only person in their school who lost their dad in the military. So now they're surrounded by this group who understands what they're going through and watching those kids interact with one another. You know, there were kids that I've known for 10 years that still won't talk to me about their dad, but the first year they're there, they're, I'm walking behind them and 
listening to him talk to this friend they made about their dad. I'm like, I've been working with you for 10 years. You never <laughs> talked to me about him. You've known this kid for two hours and you're opening up. So that the healing that took place between the kids just interacting has been amazing. That is amazing. I actually went and visited a friend of mine who was participating in a burn camp they had at the, the fire academy here. And it was the same thing. Like all these kids had these burns. And again, I'm sure they were probably the only burn injured child in in their school you know and now all of a sudden they're comparing scars you know with all these other kids they've been through and the stories of how they got burnt and you know they're healing and you know understanding what debrading is i mean all these things that no other kids probably had any idea about they were in that tribe again and you could see just from that i was only there with my son i don't think it was an hour and you know i could see it just as they ate lunch and that break when we we came in so i can imagine again the the healing power of being in a tribe of like-minded people absolutely and that's that's how we open up every camp and we've done it every year since the beginning is that first night uh, we call it our candle ceremony where so the kids will they'll circle the campfire and everyone's holding a candle and we start the flame with one one kid and and they'll introduce themselves and say their dad's name and what branch of service they were in and then they'll pass the the flame to the next the next kid, and and then everyone has now introduced themselves and and just you know a real quick. And my dad was in the army, and um, and some of the kids they're not even able to do that, but you know they just they'll just pass the flame. We don't push them to do it, but by the time the flame comes around, everyone's standing there with a candle. They all know that it's a safe place. We've all been through similar circumstances and and they know that they're amongst the brotherhood and, and then behind them are their mentors that are standing there to support them yeah that's a beautiful symbol actually i've got a, a, a picture hanging in my office right here and it says thousands of candles can be lit from a single candle and the life of the candle will not be dulled and it's so true you know i mean that kindness you share it it doesn't take anything from you but but yeah so that's a that's a very powerful symbol absolutely Right. So another element of the camp is obviously you guys are outside and I'm sure some of these kids are probably in urban or suburban settings that maybe don't, you know, get to do that very often. How, how much do you attribute to the healing uh, side of nature to these kids journeys? I, I mean, I can't say enough about what it means to just be outside. And uh, a lot of what we're trying to do is introduce them to, to things that they've never experienced. And you're right. A lot of these kids have never camped before. So their first experience you know, in a tent is with us and they all do great. I mean, we've never had a, a problem with kids not being able to adapt. And and so it, it is, it's just so beautiful. Uh, the kids being out there in the mountains and just the surroundings, um, it, it really is healing. And um, some of them can't quite see the beauty in it. It takes them a couple of years and, and they really can you know, for a 12 year old to sit, sit next to a stream and just listen to the water, you know, it doesn't happen right away. They learn to <laughs> appreciate it. Um, but yeah, the, the idea was, um, let's just pack this week with activities. Um, and, and we match each, each child has their own mentor. Um, so if we have, you know, the first year we had 16 kids and 16 mentors. And as we grew, we always had the same number of mentors that we had, had kids. And so they're walking next to those kids that whole week and that relationship develops and, um, and we do it all. I mean, we, 
we shoot shotguns and we do archery, horseback riding, whitewater rafting, mountain biking, rock climbing, um, zip lining, ropes course, canoeing, hiking, fishing. I mean, it's amazing what you can pack in, into seven days. We teach these kids that, uh, you know, there is nothing you can't accomplish in life that you set your mind to. And the only limitations, and that's the beauty of, of you know, being in America is, you know, there's, you can do whatever you want. The opportunities are available to you. If you limit yourself, that's the only limitations you'll ever have. And so, you know, we're not here to teach kids to be expert zip liners because that's not a future in zip lining. But what we're teaching them is this is going to be scary. Um, it's going to challenge you. Just learn to overcome that. And that will translate into, you know, it's scary to go off to college and move away from home and make new friends. And, but, you know, if you can overcome your fears, then, um, then you're going to be able to do whatever you want in life. And so that's why we do these things that are scary or frightening. And, and every kid has a different, something that, you know, they're uncomfortable with. That's why we do so many different things. Some kids are afraid of the water, but they're going to go rafting. Some kids are afraid of shooting guns. So they're going to shoot guns and some kids are afraid of heights. And so that's why we do rock climbing and, and ropes course and zip line and watching them overcome those things. And it's fantastic. Um, and, and what we've noticed, you know, and I don't mean to stereotype, but in a typical family with a father and a mother, it's, it's usually dad that's kind of, you know, pushing kids, Hey, you can do this, you know, get out there and get back up on that bike. I know you crashed and wipe the dirt off, climb back on and let's go. Um, and so without, you know, and, and again, I'm not trying to stereotype. There are plenty of moms that we work with that are the ones that are like, you're getting up there, you know? So I'm not discrediting at all what, what these, these amazing women do for their families. But typically we find that father's the one that's the one kind of pushing them outside their comfort zones. And so that's kind of where we step in and go, look, you know, we're going to be there for your kids and, and they're going to cry sometimes and they're going to, you know, skin their knees up and we're going to tell them to wipe the dirt off and get back up there. Yeah, I, I can imagine as well the with the, you know, the ropes course and, and facing your fears to have a constant something that you you know why would you think otherwise that when I wake up the next morning my mom or my dad is still going to be there and to have that taken away I can't imagine what that does for faith or or trust in a child's mind that you know if that parent can be taken away then how scary does that make everything else in the world. That's absolutely true. I mean, it, and that, that's one of our challenges too, is, is developing those relationships where they can become really closed off. They don't want to put their trust um, into anyone else because they don't, because what if that's taken away? It's just too much for them to handle. So it, it can take a long time to really develop those relationships with kids. And, and that's one of the unique aspects of our program. We, there's always a place for these kids to come back to. They don't age out. Um, and we are here until we have um, one of our very first campers. Um, Aaron was, he started with us in 2007 at the age of 13. And he comes back as a mentor now and he's 25 years old. And he's still very actively involved in the program. And that goes for all of our kids. There's no, sorry, you turned 18, you graduated high school. Good luck out there. You know, we're, we're rooting for you. We bring them back um, and they continue to remain a part of our program. And, 
and there are very few things out there that every year we're here to welcome them back. And those relationships that they make, we do our very best to keep the kids with the same mentor throughout their journey. Um, and we keep them in the same group. So if we have a our new batch of 11-year-olds start up, um, they'll spend um, their entire time together. And by the end of it, you know, they are a super tight-knit group of kids. Yeah, that's incredible. And it's, it's been such a powerful observation to hear so many people that be on this podcast that have been through just, you know, a host of, of trauma. I mean, such a diverse spectrum. But the one common denominator that seems to be so healing is when they discover, you know, they get through whatever the initial thing was, pull themselves out, but then they start realizing that they can help others. And when they start helping others in that mentor role, that seems to be even more powerful and even more healing than when they were the recipient of the mentorship. That's absolutely true. We, I mean, our graduates is what we call them. They are really becoming the cornerstone of our, our program. Um, we're turning more and more over to them. So um, they serve not only as mentors, but we've got our grads running the individual programs. They run the ropes course. They're taking over the climbing. They're taking over the shooting or they come back on staff. Um, we're starting an internship program this summer where we'll have grads out at the camp all summer long doing, you know, working throughout the, the summer and, and planning our activities and so forth. So, I mean, our vision is in five or seven years that this organization is run by its graduates, you know, those that have, you know, gone, gone to college and, um, you know, they are now coming back to, uh, to take over the program because they know more than anyone what works and what doesn't work and what these kids need to hear and what they need in their lives as they grow. It's amazing. Now, just as a, as a tangent for a moment, um, obviously you've got the mothers and fathers that were killed in action, but we have another group of men and women that make it back and then succumb to injuries or God forbid, even succumb to, to mental health issues and take their own lives. Do you have any of the children from, from those families come to the camp? We do. So our our um, our criteria for starting the program is, um, you know, parent who was uh, who died while in service. So that could be suicide. It could be cancer related. Um, it could be active, you know, combat related deaths or training accidents. There really isn't any delineation if they're serving. Um, and they, they, um, died in essentially line of duty death. Um, then they're welcome to our program. One caveat that we do have, and this, you know, this is a point of consternation for a lot of people is, um, you know, the core of our program is providing the mentorship that they're, they're lacking. Um, and so if, if mom is remarried I and mean, they have a healthy relationship, the kids are doing well, bringing them into the program really, um, it, it actually, in some cases, it isn't really that great for the kid because they're doing well. They have the mentorship that they were missing. Um, and so we asked, you know, if, if they've remarried and things are going well, then just leave room for the kids that, that don't have anyone in their lives. Because it's a small program and, and we only bring in about seven new families a year, but we'll have about 20 applicants every year. So it's kind of a delineator is, hey, is there anyone providing that mentorship that they're missing? And if there is, then and leave room for someone who doesn't have anyone. So that's really the criteria. But I mean, 
as things are winding down um, with combat operations and so forth, more and more of the families that are attending are are not actually combat related, but a lot of um, a lot of suicide related deaths and um, cancer related those types of things, training accidents. Yeah, well, and I was going to say I love that. Obviously, I don't love that it involves people passing away, but I like you know love the fact that those are all being included because I mean I see the same in in my profession. We call line of duty death. Oh, you got you know killed in a house fire. But, uh, you know, a firefighter who's seen 20 years of trauma and hasn't slept every third day, who succumbs to their own mental battles, that's not viewed as line of duty death. And I completely disagree with that. I think, you know, like you're saying, whether it's a title or not, these are all men and women who have served. And, and if a parent is lost from any of the the side effects of that, then they should be under that umbrella. And, and for those kids, I mean, if you can imagine the the difficulty, the extra difficulty that causes when, when a parent commits suicide is, you know, a lot of these kids will express, you know, is it something I said? Is it something I did? Is this my fault? And the struggles are, are very unique to that type of loss. And it, it can really wreak havoc on a child trying to get a, their mind around what happened is, you know, why, why did this happen? Or did something, you know, could I have avoided this? Or could I have prevented this? And, and so when you can get those kids together, um, that that's really, it's super powerful. So it is, it is a different type of loss, but, uh, it's one that's no less, you know, painful and difficult for the children to, to, you know, come to grips with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to just talk as well about the expansion or the, not the expansion, but the, the purchase. So tell me about, um, you know, what point you, you were able to, to purchase a place of your own and literally create your own camp? Um, well, I mentioned how it started in, you know, 2007, we had 16 boys and it was for boys only initially because we couldn't quite figure out how we, how would we bring in girls and who's going to mentor them? And, um, and so from 2007 through 2010, it was boys only. Uh, and, but we would still bring the moms out. And if the moms had a daughter, the, the girls could come out and we, we did some programs for them just within the city and they, they hung out with the moms, but they badgered us incessantly to start a program for the girls. Um, and, and in 2011, we, I met an amazing woman who had actually lost her husband in, in Afghanistan and she wanted to start the program for the girls. And so that was the key piece we were missing is finding someone who could figure out how to, to develop a girls program and bring in female mentors to work with them. So in 2011, we, we brought on a girls program and but we were still um now we had the boys at the boy scout camp the girls that usually like a horse ranch or somewhere they could have you know accommodations and then the moms doing the moms program so it was really three separate programs running at the same time and it became unbelievably costly to to rent three separate facilities for one week. I mean, we were paying almost $60,000 for one week of just facilities. Um, and so we started, you know, just think, well, what if we had our own place? Um, we could run programs throughout the year and I can't imagine it's going to cost us $60,000 to maintain this facility. So we rallied up our, our donors who are, I mean, just the support we've received is just, it's, I can't even put words to it. We, we kind of, you know, prodded our donors. Is this something y'all would be willing to support? And we got, you know, people pledging their support. And 
in 2015, uh, we found the perfect location. It was a 120-acre, used to be an old hunting hunting facility, had a lodge and several cabins, and um, just on the west slope of Pikes Peak. Um, and it was perfect for us. So we uh, we bought the property in 2015, and then uh, spent about a year renovating all the facilities with a group of incredible volunteers and most of the renovations were done through volunteers. We did build some new stuff. Um, and then at the same time, we were running a really aggressive capital campaign. And in 2016, we hosted our first uh, summer camp on our own facility. Um, and then believe it or not, in 2018, we actually paid it off. So all the renovations, the mortgage and everything were paid off. And so then it, it just became, you know, well, what the sky's the limit. Um, our operating cost for running the, the camp facility, just keeping the place running, is only $20,000 a year. So we went from paying 60000 to borrow someone's place for a week to having our own place paid off, you know, 20000 a year for upkeep. Um, and so our budget went down and we, and as we increased the number of programs that we were offering. From there, you know, it became, well, what can we do now? And so what was just the one week out of the year, we said, well, let's, let's, let's do a fall retreat because the colors are beautiful. Let's bring families in and, and actually have the mom spend the time with the kids up at the fall retreat. And, and that went fantastic. So, we, well, let's start doing a spring retreat. And so we would bring families out for the spring as the snow's melting and it was either going to be hiking, mountain biking, or snowmobiling and sledding because you never know in the mountains. Um, and so that went fantastic. So then we said, well, you know, we're starting to see that as our kids get older and they're graduating out of the program, they're struggling in college. And that was something that, as I mentioned before, is unique to our program is they're never done with Knights of Heroes. Um, so we saw a lot of the struggle occurring in college when they go off. They're away from home, starting to make bad decisions. Um, let's stay engaged with, with this group. And we really pushed really hard to start focusing on our graduates. So we started a graduate retreat where we would just bring in our grads, get them back into the camp, and let's start talking about the things that you're dealing with being away from home. Um, <clears throat> so that's been wildly successful. And we're really pushing for our grads to come back on staff as well. So we added the graduate retreat as well. And then we said, well, let's get, you know, let's start getting real crazy here. And let's, let's see if we can get kids sleeping in snow caves overnight. So we started a winter retreat. Um, and, and so now we've got for the gold star kids, which are the, the survivors, um, military families, we've got the winter retreat, spring retreat, the big summer camp, a graduate retreat for our grads, a fall retreat. Now those are the programs that we're able to offer to offer our gold star families. That's amazing. Now you mentioned about um, the moms being there, or you know, assuming spouses. Um, what are you seeing with them, the adults that come with with the kids and, and the retreats that they attend? Um, that was kind of a. We, when we started this, it was all about bringing the kids out, and what we didn't realize was the the healing that takes place when the moms get together. Because a lot of times, these families will move back to their hometown, away from the military community. And then there's no other military widows near them. And for them to be able to connect with other widows, um, that just like we mentioned with the kids, you know, the kids, it's a healing for them to know they're in a community of people who are experiencing the same thing. 
The same thing happens with the moms as well. So they have the opportunity to come out and connect and, and, you know, they'll meet in the moms program. So for the first two years, our organization pays for moms to come out and do the moms program. And in the third year, um, just because it would become too overwhelming, they can come out if they want on their own um, and kind of do their own thing with the friends they've met. But, uh, but for the retreats, when the moms come out with the kids, um, it's a chance for them to meet some of the moms they, they might not have had opportunity to meet in the first two years that they were coming out. It's, it's really, it's really great to have them a part of it. And, and some of them actually are filling staff roles within our organization. Our uh, development coordinator, Carrie, she was one of the first moms. So the first year she brought her kids out to the program and now she served on the board of directors and is now um, at our development coordinator we have uh, one of our board members is is a mom, and then several moms come out to do work either in the kitchen or work buying the food for the week. So uh, they fill a lot of roles within the organization. That's amazing, and it's funny when you said the, the the kids struggling with college. That's something you don't think about as well. That they've got the camp, and then when they're at home, I'm assuming that you know losing that family member brings them very close as a as a family. And then to suddenly be plucked out of you know that tribe, their their family unit, and their their friends in that town, and now being put in a college, especially if they've gone to a different city, that must be you know overwhelming again. So the the support from you guys to help them acclimatize and adjust to that new new tribe they're going to be basically trying to form, I can see how powerful that would be. It is, and and. Yeah, getting those those folks back and watching, and and that's something that's exciting for us. You know, we're talking, we're 13 years into this now, and to see, you know, that 11 year old that started in 2007, who's now 23 and getting ready to graduate college. I mean, it is it's super powerful and motivating. Um, and, and our we've had incredible success. We just completed a, a survey of our our graduates, you know, just to kind of gauge where they're at. And we have 97% of our graduates going on to higher education. And part of that can be attributed to the incredible support other organizations provide them as far as scholarships go. So when you have, when you have a community where every child is eligible for free tuition, you know, you're going to have higher attendance numbers, obviously, but, but we're still excited to know that 97% of our, our graduates move on to college and those that don't go to college, most of them are, are going to military. Um, and we have, you know, a hundred percent of our grads say that they would recommend this program to, to other families. Um, so it's, um, we're seeing the fruits of our, of our labor, you know, over the last 13 years as we watch these kids grow and just into thriving young adults. Yeah. And I know, you know, from, from a spiritual point of view, the, the dads are looking down from, you know, heaven or the universe or whatever people you know take as their philosophy and seeing their kids being taken care of and, and seeing that ethos of no one left behind truly being lived i think you know is just is incredible and, and I, I think it's this is something that more and more people need to hear about the true brotherhood and sisterhood of you know the the armed forces and the first responder community this these are stories that i think truly underline that that philosophy and I mean, anyone that volunteers with the program or is a part of it in any way, I mean, 
most of them have kids and you know when they when they tuck them in at night they're thinking you know if something happens to me i really want there to be someone there for my kids and you know that that was one of the powerful things that drove me you know to start this all was you know um Troy's kids were the same age as my boys and you know i was still actively flying and you know i it, it was it was something that i thought about all the time you know who's going to be there for my kids and and i want to make sure that there's you know cuz every father or everyone that that we've lost has had that same what happens to my kids if something happens to me especially as they go off to deploy and um you know we um it it drives people really to to want to be there and support support those who have given everything for what we have yeah but i think it's people like you that lead as well and I, you know and i mean that you know wholeheartedly getting people like ryan parrot and so many of these other servicemen and women and first responders and, and you know civilians that have seen a problem and not just turned away they've actually said all right well you know roll their their sleeves up and say well let's let's address this problem because clearly no one else is <laughs> is taking care of these 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 kids or these adults or these soldiers whoever it is um and it always amazes me that these men and women i have on the show that have already given so much already served their community in in, in the profession that they're in and refuse to say I've done my bit. That's it. But find another problem and then starts bringing solutions. I think is is incredible. And I think most people want to help, but a lot of people just need to be led. They need to be given the opportunity to help and with some direction. I agree. I mean, it's it's in us all, um, especially as you you know you get older, you enter that part of your life where it's you know it's time to make things better for the next generation and. Um, like you said, they just, it's sometimes it can be difficult to find what is it that drives you and what is it that your heart is into. And, um, and we've been blessed at Knights of Heroes to have, I mean, we've got a core of 150 just devoted volunteers that just give their time and energy and, and resources to make sure that this program works. And, um, it's, it's just uplifting to see the the caliber of people that come out to support this program is phenomenal. And it's, uh, it is incredibly uplifting to just be out there surrounded by these folks. Yeah, no, I'm sure it must be amazing for, for the kids and also for you guys just to be around like-minded people. Right. Well, I, you said about you were still flying. So I'd love to kind of hear the fire department story. So tell me about, <laughs> you know, what, what your decision was to retire initially and then the transition out of the military. Um, I, I when I was in the military, um, I mean, all pilots really the flying is people don't understand is their secondary job. You all have a job, and then you fly when you're not doing your primary job, um, and that can be anywhere from, um, you know, being the life support officer, or you know. It, 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 there's a number of jobs throughout and, and the older you get, the more the, the other job, you know, overshadows the flying piece. So I spent a lot of time as an inspector general or running exercises. And, and so I running exercises like emergency management exercises or, you know, combat exercises. I worked very closely with the fire department. I mean, I knew these guys really well and they're, they're obviously on all the emergency exercises they're they're the crux of the response so i got to know them really well and i just i don't know what it was i was like i just loved hanging out with firefighters 
And so I found myself drawn towards that community. Um, and then when I was, my, my second to last assignment was in Korea at Osan. And that's when I really, I was hanging out with the fire department a lot, doing exercises and, and they were going to close the runway for a month to repave it. So there wasn't going to be any flying. And so the, the fire department said, Hey, we're going to do an EMT course while the runway's closed. You want to be a part of it? And I'm sure. So I did an EMT course uh, with the fire department and I just fell in love with the medicine. I thought it was just unbelievably interesting. And I, I and so I, you know, the normal path for a pilot in the Air Force is you retire and, and you go to the airlines. Um, but I just, I just really liked the medicine and the fire department and, and hanging out with the firefighters. Like, well, what if I just, what if I became a medic and joined a fire department somewhere? Um, it just seemed like a very exciting and then a way to give back too, you know, cause you're still helping. And so I got my EMT. And then when I, my last assignment was in Guam, I actually connected with the fire department there and I actually ran calls with them. You know, when I wasn't working, I would hang out at the fire department with the medics and um, they would teach me and I would run calls with them on the ambulance. Um, and so then I was sold. I'm like, this is what I want to do. So I, the last assignment, I, I started doing all my prerequisites for paramedic school and um, applied to a paramedic school here in Colorado Springs. And no kidding, I retired on a Friday out of Guam, and class started that next Monday. Really? At, uh, <laughs> yeah, at the community college. So I had two days of retirement before I started paramedic school. Um, and it was quite an eye-opener to walk into class, and the average age was 19. And here I am, a uh, 45-year-old retired Air Force pilot, sitting in paramedics class with with all my 19 year old friends. But I tell you what, that was, what a great group. I mean, I really, I enjoyed every second of it. And I've told them all, I've been, I've done a lot of schooling in my days and paramedic school is the most difficult school I've ever attended. Um, you heard that everyone from a Lieutenant Colonel pilot. <laughs> I tell you, it, it just stretched me. And so I was about two thirds of the way through um, paramedic school when I got hired on with the Car Springs Fire Department, um, and I was, this was, I was so happy. Um, so I had to stop paramedic school to go to the academy. And then about halfway through um, my fourth class year in the fire department, the department said, hey, you can go back and continue where you left off with paramedic school. And, and the school was gracious enough to let me just kind of rejoin the next class. Um, and so I finished paramedic school about the same time I finished my fourth class year. And, um, and that's where I really connected with Chris and Sam because they proctored me on the fire department um, when I was going through my paramedic training with the department. Um, and I tell you, the respect I have for those two guys, it's, it's incredible. Um, you're not going to find better paramedics. And, you know, they always say a true testament is if you could pick the paramedic to respond to your family in crisis, who would it be? And it'd be those two guys. So. I learned from them. Um, and so I, I, it was probably only about a, a year or so that I um, served as a medic on the fire department. And it just, I loved being on the crew. I loved, um, you know, the excitement of, of the job and um, running calls. But 
it just wasn't what um, it wasn't it didn't work out for the family because you know we are so used to you know 21 years of going to work and coming home for dinner and um, and now my kids were you know one was off in college and the other was in the middle of high school and and now I'm working shifts and we were grossly undermanned in medics and we were doing a lot of mandatory hirebacks and 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 mix that with the difficulty of actually being on the line and finishing paramedic school was a huge huge drain on the family and and after it just reached a point where you know my wife and I said this isn't really what we wanted for retirement <laughs> um working harder now than I ever have in my life and and you know we didn't come this far to not be able to be together and you know we're doing 15 shifts a month or 20 shifts a month and being away from home that much isn't really what we wanted and, and there was the reason I didn't go to the airlines because I didn't want to be on trips and spend you know most of my nights in a hotel so now I'm spending most of my nights in station and as, as hard as it was you know we decided what's best for the family is that we just not continue in that profession so it's a, a, a testament to the, the firefighters out there that are, I mean, it, it is a difficult, difficult, difficult job. And the families that support them through all that is, I just, my hat's off to them. It just wasn't something that, that we could do as a family. And so I went back to flying. Right. And it's so interesting to get that perspective. I don't know. I can't think of anyone else on planet earth that probably went from, you know, pilot to firefighter medic but um yeah firstly the paramedic school part i'm right there with you i went through medic school when i was you know on the job as well i was actively working put myself through school in a totally different school so i didn't have any support from the department at all I was going through a divorce and was a single dad <laughs> it was by wow. far the worst you know hardest year not the worst the hardest year um and i think that's that's an you know under um, a misunderstood thing that that medic school was like any other school. It's like no, I mean it really is a crucible. But to get your perspective as well of not only the shifts that a lot of these departments work, but then the effect of this understaffing, how that falls squarely on the men and women on the front line, not the decision makers further up, and that they can be kept from their families. You know, I think that's that's an area that I really, really hopefully will be part of the push to change because, you know, the special forces, for example, Delta that, that you know, uh, Troy was protecting, well, these groups, their environment is set up to make them thrive because they are these elite operators. Well, to me, police, fire, medics, you know, there's no different, but we have them in this environment where they're set up to fail. You know, they're, they're working these crazy hours, these crazy shifts without the ability to recover. Um, a lot of them with, with, you know, very little support on the fitness and wellness side. And there's just a, a complete disconnect where I don't think the general public understand what they are expected to do on the normal, you know, work week and then how understaffing then affects them where they don't get to see their kids, you know, even even more than normal. That's absolutely true. I mean, you think, you know, when they when people tell you how many shifts a month they work, they well, look at all those days off you have. Well, you're coming home after running twenty calls in a shift. You're wasted for you know, you get home at seven in the morning, you're useless until like one. And then you have, you know, eight hours till you go to bed and go back to work. So it's, it's not just when you look at the number of days off, uh, and, uh, 
you know, a firefighter or a police officer has, you got to remember there's recovery time that's got to take place. And that's time away from your family as well. So it boils down to not a whole lot of time at home. And it is, it is difficult. I mean, uh, yeah, my wife, you know, she told me, you know, we've been through deployments, we've been through pilot training together, we've been through everything. That year that I was on the department finishing medic school is the most difficult year of our marriage, for sure. Yeah. And the thing is, there's there's two sides to the coin. The job itself, just like you said, is amazing. It was by far, you know, my calling. Ironically, I wanted to be a fireman when I was a kid. I was told I was colorblind and could never do it. And then years later, I realized they were full of shit and I did become a fireman. <laughs> but uh, um, And the pilot was the other thing I was told I couldn't do. Um, but I think I would have been a shitty pilot, so it's probably a good thing. Um, but, uh, but you, you know, the, so that's not about complaining. These men and women love doing what they do. Absolutely. But like you said, the part that makes it brutal is not the job. I mean, even the things we see, if you have the rest and recovery, I think we, ha- we are the kind of humans that are resilient to see these things and we have to process them properly. But the way we're, you know, we're working these men and women is literally killing them. There's no question. And so it's so interesting to, to see you with such an incredible, you know, story up to that point to be able to be dropped in the middle of that. And, and like you had, like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> Absolutely. It's I, I think, you know, there are those that enter the, the department early and they get married. And, and it's kind of the lifestyle that that they become accustomed to is a little easier, maybe, I guess, for if, you, if it's all you know. But to come from 21 plus years of this is what we're used to, it's such a drastic change that, yeah, it's, um, I got to tell you, though, I, I've been truly blessed that I'm actually able to keep my medic license. Um, uh, we're part of the Teller County Emergency Management System now, our camp is, and we're actually recognized as an EMS facility, and our uh, medical director has been extremely gracious in allowing me to maintain my medic under him as part of the EMS community up in Teller County where the camp is. So that was something that was just, it was, I was just super bummed to, to, to leave, but I'm actually able to remain somewhat engaged in the EMS world with, um, with with the Teller County folks. And, and so, you know, I'm able to, cause once you hand over, you let that medic expire, oh, it's too difficult to get back. So I'm actually able to maintain that and, and, and act as the medical authority during our programs up at camp. Excellent. Yeah. I'm working on being a, a volunteer firefighter paramedic here. I'm, I'm a volunteer now, but actually getting signed off as a, a medic as well. So I can, I can do the same kind of thing. I, I cause I retired out last year. Um, but really to focus on this this project and really you know make it bigger and bigger but um i there's no way in hell i'm letting my medic uh, lap <laughs> no way in hell <laughs> it's way too much work holy smokes yeah yeah for sure. so all right well then just just to kind of put a, a bow on on the the career path so was it flight instruction that you went to after the fire department i did i i spent a year getting um Back into the flying, working with uh, an organization down in Pueblo that does the initial flight training for for military candidates. And then after a year there, uh, my wife and I decided to move up to Fort Collins, and that would be a four-hour commute. So so I just started instructing up here at the Fort Collins airport. And um, about that time is when I actually went on staff with Knights of Heroes because 
um, the more and more we kept adding to our programming list was I just, I really wanted to stay all volunteer. Um, I just couldn't do it and, and still get by. So I actually went on staff as paid staff for Knights of Heroes a little more than a year ago and then flight instruction on the side. And a big part of the, the flight, you know, going into flight instruction was my, my oldest son uh, wants to be an Air Force pilot. So um, flying with him kept me engaged in flying. I just really love teaching. Um, it's just the reward is incredible when you bring someone who's never been in a small plane and now they've got their commercial license. They're going off to get a job somewhere. So it's just been exciting. I make my own schedule and, and it ties in perfectly to the program because I can schedule around our programs and anytime the weather's not good or something, I can focus on Knights of Heroes. So it's a perfect marriage between the two two jobs. Brilliant. Now, just again, another tangent for a moment. Obviously, in you know, the, the, the start of the Afghan and you know, second Iraq conflict came from hijacking of planes. And I've seen, yeah, when I was young, a lot of the the uh, plane bombings and hijackings that happened even back then as a pilot and also a military pilot and an instructor, what are some of the innovations you've seen in commercial airlines that are making it safer now? I'm probably not the best to speak to this, but I do know that, um, you know, there's been changes to um, screening and, you know, for, for passengers and, and, training that the flight crews go through has changed dramatically, you know, the new cockpit doors that are more secure, um, air marshals. Those are kind of the things that I, I mean, I, I wouldn't, I probably know more of that just from reading the paper than I do being in the community, but you know, in the civilian flight instruction side of it, there's not a whole lot that we do. There's different screening for students. So in, in order for someone who's not an American citizen to inner flight training that has changed a lot yeah because it was it was here in florida where i think most of them did the training loaded the football right. bell area right yeah brilliant we're just yeah just a different perspective so thank you um so i'm going to do some wrap-up questions but let's talk about the camp more then so um as far as donations you know what is it that that you're looking to do next with the camp and how are people listening how can they help um, well, one of our new, new things that we're doing up there, and this came from my time as a medic was, um, I really didn't have, and I don't think most Americans do understand the depravity that exists within the United States. And, you know, as, as everyone looks at the United States and, oh, no one goes hungry and no kids are in need, man, I saw things as a medic and you can attest to it, I'm sure as well, that what happens to this kid now that his dad just overdosed on heroin his mom's already in jail and looking at little kids and you're like well this this isn't fair i mean this kid didn't ask for this and and there is there is significant gap in the system the state you know they're doing their very best to take care of these kids that don't have anywhere else to go but there aren't state-run group homes especially in colorado there's not like you know they pull this kid out of this crabby situation at two in the morning and they bring him to the state home and they're there to be taken care of. And that doesn't exist. Um, there are foster families that stand ready to take in families, at, you know, kids at two in the morning. But if they're not answering their phone or they don't have anyone available, the, the social workers just sit there and like, uh. And then so what's filled the gap is you have these incredible organizations with just like the people we're talking about. They see a need and they step up. 
Um, these, these charity organizations have started group homes to fill that gap. Um, you'll also get kids who went to foster care, but they've been so wrecked by their parents that they can't function in the foster care community. Either they've been you know, abused as kids and they just don't know anything else. So they, they don't act appropriately in, in foster care and the foster parents go, we can't handle this. Another gap, there's nowhere to send them. They can't go to juvenile hall because they didn't break the law. And, and so this is where these other group homes will come in and fill that gap. So we partnered recently with a group called Rocky Mountain Kids and they run foster homes, um, five foster homes in Colorado Springs, one for girls and four for boys. And these are the kids they can't find foster care placement for. And, you know, and they're also a group that, you know, all, all these organizations are scared, to, you know, because they're high risk. Um, and so these kids have no opportunity to really do anything. So we partner with them. We said, we'll take them up to camp and show them, you know, we'll challenge them. We'll do the same things we're doing with our gold star kids. And these kids, it had been, it's been an incredible journey. We've been working with them about a year. We've had probably seven, eight day camps with them. And then we had one three day, two night, a mini camp last summer and we're bringing them up and and they are just, they're incredible kids. They are victims of their circumstances. You know, no 12 year old, you know, if they're messed up, it's because they were messed up by someone. So we're bringing these kids up and, and we're, you know, we're speaking into their hearts and what do you want to do when you get older? There's nothing, you know, they've been told they're worthless and, you know, no one wants you and that's why you're here. And now we're bringing them up there and the group homes do a fantastic job of building them up too. But to have other people speak into their lives and go, look, you can put the past behind you and you can move on from here because it's just their outlook is very dismal. I mean, there's, you know, when they turn 18 or 19 and they age out of that foster care system, they, I mean, they're done. Like, where do they go? And so we're working with those, those kids now. And it's been extremely rewarding because um, we have this incredible facility and a lot of the difficulty in running the programs for the military kids is the logistics and getting them in and, and we've been blessed by Southwest Airlines gives us 250 tickets a year to bring these kids from all over the country. Um, and so the logistics and the travel portion is a difficult part of planning the events for the military kids because they're from all over. But for the local kids in these foster homes, I just call them and go, hey, I'll meet you up at camp tomorrow. One of the homes will bring up their staff and, and 10 kids and we can teach them how to, you know, cut down trees. And, um, you know, we'll spend half a day working and half a day you know, doing something fun. So they'll swing a hammer for half a day and then they'll go out and ride mountain bikes for half a day. It's been a, an extremely rewarding experience for us and, and it's and it, and mutually beneficial um, for the kids and, and the, the folks that run the, the homes. So that's um, been part of our focus recently is, is amping up that program. Um, we just want to, you know, get them up there as much as we can. Uh, we're also partnering uh, with a group up in Nebraska that, that offers some hunting opportunities for our kids as well. So uh, that's really the direction we're headed is just more and more opportunities for, for not only the foster kids, but the military kids, and then bringing our graduates into the fold to take leadership um, roles within the organization. Well, that is, firstly, it's incredible. And I, you know, I applaud you again for, you know, widening the the girth of your project now because you're absolutely right and i don't think there's anyone listening to this that's in the first responder position who hasn't seen exactly what you're talking about and, and it's an interesting perspective 
being a first responder because you hear, you know, you see, for example, crime, you see the, the, you know, the drug addiction epidemic that we have going on and people refer, oh, that guy's a bum. No, that guy's actually an Iraq veteran who was hooked on pain pills after he came back with his back injury and now he's homeless. You know, there's a story and the same with so many other ones. As you've seen, you walk into these communities like, how could you not end up completely fucked up growing up in this household? Like you said, Absolutely. the dad's a gangbanger, the mother's, you know, working the streets. And again, how did they get to there? And you reverse engineer and then you look at the, you know, our drug policies and our, the way we do prisons in this country and, you know, education and all these areas. And it's like, we are, again, are we, are we setting these kids, especially in some of these poorer areas up for failure and just repeating the cycle over and over and over again? And what you guys are doing is you're stopping that cycle and you're breaking right. it and you're showing these kids that, your history doesn't define you. Of course, it's going to factor in, but surrounding them with with great mentors, with great people who are out there and walk the walk, who they can actually get buy-in from. I respect this guy. He's a soldier. He's a, you know a pilot. Um, I think is is exactly what we need. We need to stop the ones that have already been hurt and then stop hurting the new generation that's growing up. And it's. It's a challenge in Colorado, too, with our current drug laws. It's so easy for these kids to get their hands on drugs that that's a huge struggle is, is the, the, sh the shift in the mindset of this, this younger generation is, you know, you guys used to drink when you were kids and now we smoke pot. So, so you know, get over it. And so, and it's become so normalized, especially in Colorado, that it's not, you know, you smell it everywhere. And, um, and, and these kids have such easy access to it. And, and that's usually, and people hate, the kids hate it when we use the term step drug. Um, but they start with marijuana. And, and I, you know, I, I take the time on every overdose on the way into the hospital to talk to the guy. So what, how did this all begin with you? You just overdosed on heroin. How did it start? And every single one of them says it started by smoking marijuana. And then it became, you know, I'd steal my, my dad's, um, you know, pain pills. And then I, then I moved over to benzos and then I, you know, and it, and it worked itself up heroin. And so that's really frightening is these kids just feel like drug use has really been downplayed so much, but it's at the crux of most of the issues that we're having. Um, we drug test all our grads. If they want to come back and be a part of our program, you have to pass a drug test. And if you're not willing to do the drug test, you don't come back. If you fail the drug test, you don't come back. And I tell you what, we've had a couple kids that didn't want to take it or they failed it. And two years later, they're calling me going, I really, 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 really want to be a part of the program. Again, I'm, I'm clean or I'm not going to do this. Um, and so yeah, holding the kids accountable is, is super important. And, and, you know, I don't want these kids coming out to mentor the next generation if, if they're not living, you know, if they're not, you know, walking the walk. You know, they can't just say that they're, you know, living this way and then go home and do something else. But yeah, like you mentioned, you know, when you look at it, it just continues. You know, when you have um, parents who are abusing drugs and, and are, you know, are criminals, their kids, that's all they see. They can say all they want about, hey, don't do drugs when you grow up while they're smoking the joint. The kid's going to do what he saw or, you know, he saw, she saw his, their parents do. It's just, it continues generation after generation. And I tell you what, it could be one thing you tell a kid that will just burn in the back of their mind and it completely change the outcome of their life. Um, especially if they've come to trust you um, and, 
and, and you've developed a relationship to where what you say, they'll actually listen to you and it can change everything. One weekend, believe it or not, can change a kid's life because when you sit them down and go, what do you want to be in 20 years? And they go, I don't know. That's the scariest thing a kid can ever tell you. I don't know. I don't know, whatever. But if they say, I really want to be, you know, a, a chemical engineer, but, but, I, but that's, there's no way I can do that. But you go, okay, well, stop right there. You're, you want to be a chemical engineer in 20 years. What has to happen 10 years from now, five years from now, two years from now, tomorrow? And no one's, if, if no one's ever laid that out and, then, and to the point where they go, so you're saying it's possible, you know, then they're just going to continue down the path they're going. Yeah. No, I, I agree completely. And it's funny when you're talking about the, you know, the, the marijuana, the benzos to, to opiates. Um, I think that's what people are starting to realize with drugs as well is they'll reach for whatever if there's, if there's a void they're trying to fill mentally and, and viewing these drugs as a band-aid for underlying mental health trauma. You know, and I think that it's interesting. I've talked about this before, but Portugal did something very, very, um, different and they decriminalized drug use, not to promote it, but the opposite. They had the worst crisis in, in Europe. And so the addicts, instead of becoming prisoners, like, you know, we do, you know, you have whatever and you get locked up and you start that spiraling downward. They got filtered through addiction programs, mental health counseling, job creation, education, and they they literally reversed it within less than 10 years. So I agree the actual drugs themselves are an issue, but I think the reason why so many people are reaching for them, and obviously the, the elephant in the room is alcoholism, which is perfectly illegal, we see all over the place, um, that is the conversation we need to have rather than, you know, a war on drugs because that ends up on a war on addicts and that never that clearly hasn't benefited people because we have, you know, like 10 times the amount of prisons and prisoners that we had 50 years ago. But these, these you know, children, if the trauma is addressed, they're not going to need to reach for anything to escape from the real world because they're enjoying the real world. And that's, that's what you guys are showing them too. Like this is clarity. This is nature. This is how awesome it feels to go down a inflatable boat <laughs> down a river. <laughs> Try not smiling then, you know? Um, right. so I think, yeah, that, that, that is, is such a great way because I mean, I agree. Of course you can't, you know, if you've got things in your system that you have to draw the line. But I hope that as a nation, we understand that if we address the mental health side versus, you know, looking at, at the, the symptom, which is the drug use, then right. we're really going to get to the root of it. Absolutely. Brilliant. So then as far as donation, then, so how are people listening, how can they support? Uh, well, we have a website, knightsofheroes.org. That's K-N-I-G-H-T-S of heroes.org. People can go on there. They can read about the programs we offer. They can read testimonials. There's links to, uh, you know, 250 testimonials from families on what it's done for them. Um, and there's also a way to donate um, online if, if people are able to support the mission. Um We've been blessed with all the volunteers that, that we could possibly have. And that's one difficult thing is people who want to, you know, maybe they don't have resources, but they have talents to, to give. It's just difficult in this organization. The way we bring in our mentors is it started with this trusted core of 15 and, and then that guy or gal knew someone who would be great. And so when I when I talk to the the moms about hey trust me we'll take care very good care of your children it's very I have to I know all the mentors and or this 
trusted mentor knows this mentor. So we're not actually in need of, of mentors because that's what we get a lot is people will start calling and go, hey, I heard about your program. I'd love to come out and help. And I'm like, ah. you know, it's we, we have that core that comes back every year. So we're not in need of, of people to come out and help is and um, as difficult as for me to tell people, hey, look, you know, we're, we're good on the mentor side. Um, cause I know there are a lot of great people out there that really benefit the program, but it's just so difficult for us to make sure that we have exactly the right people. And, um, and for me to answer to the moms and go, I know every one of these mentors, your kids are in good hands. So, so we don't need the, the help with the volunteer wise, but the financial support is always, always helpful. And, um, and, and we've done really, we're, we do a great job, um, with fiscal responsibility. We have what we call the, the bake sale, um, you know, criteria, if we're not willing to take that, you know, $25 and change that that little girl who did a bake sale for us sent us, if we're not willing to spend her money on this, then we're not going to, we're not going to spend the money on it. That's brilliant. And then again, it sounds so efficient. I'm, I'm big on efficiency. And, you know, I love the fact that I can sit here in Ocala, Florida at my office desk and talk to you in, you know, in Colorado. It's, it's a very efficient thing as well. And what you guys have done with purchasing your own camp is, you know, again, you've, you've got this, very lean infrastructure so that all the money is going to the actual things that you need to, to get the kids in the camp. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. Um, the first one I like to ask is, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be about what we've discussed today or something completely different. Absolutely. Our, our um, I didn't mention this when we were talking about starting the program. There's a book called Raising a Modern Day Night. And I was actually, so Troy told me to read that book. Um, it was one of the last discussions that we had before I moved. He said, you got to read this book. It's about raising your boys and, and you're going to love it. So I was actually reading that book at the time of his death. And I was on the chapter of the absent father wound where it talks about the difficulties and struggles of a child in the, in, if they've lost their father. Um, so it was, I mean, that was um extremely powerful. So that book, Raising a Modern Day Night, is it kind of outlines the um, kind of how we structured the program. And, and that's kind of where our name came from, um, Knights of Heroes. Um, and we, we, we follow that, you know, knightly role and being noble and those kind of things. And our tenets of manhood kind of come from that. And, you know, we use those same tenets for, for the ladies as well. You know, be bold, be responsible, be a leader, accept responsibility. That all comes from that book, Raising Modern Day Night. Um, another book I recommend to the moms um, is um, From Innocence to Entitlement, because that's one of the things we really struggle with with these kids. Our nation has been extremely gracious to support these families. The f- what happens sometimes is they develop a sense of entitlement. So they show up and go, what are you giving me for free You know, at this program? Because there's so many programs, they bring them out, they just shower them with gifts, and they want to show their gratitude and monetary or, you know, gifting, we bring them out. We, we give, they get to keep two of the shirts. They give everything back. They leave with two shirts and in their first year, they get a family crest, which is kind of a momentum of their time there. And my lineage, which is a fantastic organization provides those for free. And then when they graduate, they get a sword. Everything else is, you know, we're not here to shower you with stuff. So that sense of entitlement is something we, that we focus on squashing, because it's a horrible thing that's happened, but it doesn't entitle you to, you know, certain behaviors or whatever. And you're not, people are just aren't here to give you stuff. 
So that's a great book as well, From Innocence to Entitlement, about how this some of the younger generation feels so entitled and, and what do you have to offer me? Yeah, I think that's many generations. <laughs> I think that, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's a cancer of society. And I think if you're it not is. waking up saying, how can I make the world a little better? But you got your hand out and, and either yep. give me more or I've done enough. So I'm not going to help anyone else, which is another one exactly. that kills me. Um, yeah, I think, I think all generations, certain people could learn from that, that book. Brilliant. And then I, I do want to do a, a plug, seeing as they connected us. Uh, Life of Death, Life and Death Matters is the one that Sam and Chris Adams just wrote as well. So I'll, I'll plug that in there again. Great book. All right. So then, um, same question, but a movie. A movie. Oh, wow. Stumped me on this one. Hmm. All right. While you're thinking about it. <laughs> okay. I'll think are, about that. Are you going to be watching Top Gun 2? Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't want to spoil my, my memories of the first one. Cause I watched that 4,000 times in high school and I feel like my awesome memories from the first one will be squashed. If I watch this next one, I can tell you, I watched backdraft too. And yeah, I can never unsee that again. It completely, <laughs> it was one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life, but the first one was great. So <laughs> All right. Well, then, and instead of a movie, then what about a documentary? Any of those that you love? Oh, I I tell you what, I'm in this crazy health kick now, and forks over knives. <laughs> it's a great film. <laughs> totally off topic, but yeah, I mean, it's a, but it relates to us living healthy lives because I mean, you know, most of our 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 um, budget national budget goes to healthcare now and 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 i tell you what it would help the ems community if people ate healthier so yeah great um forks over knives would be a great way because if we could get our nation healthier then a lot of our problems start to go away absolutely well again prevention same with the mental health and the drug side um are you, did you did you turn to plant-based are you plant-based i actually am for about i mean it's just been recent too um maybe a month i tell you what i've never felt better and it's kind of an experiment. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to do an, an Ironman on my, you know, the year I turned 50. So I'm starting my training now. So 2021, it's going to be a combined Knights of Heroes fundraiser with a Ironman Arizona team. And I want to see if this plant-based hype lives up to what it's, you know, what they say. You just have to be careful though, because there's a lot of things you you need to supplement. Yeah. Um, and I will say that's probably something that those documentaries don't touch on enough is there are going to be things you're missing. You got to make sure that you approach it the right way and talk to your doctor about what supplements you need. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I switched to plant-based and I'm, I'm not again now I'm omnivore. Um, but it was about, let me see, six years ago. And I had the same thing and, and, and I did get to a point where I felt like I needed, you know, to put meat back in, but that was six months. My blood work was amazing. My gastrointestinal health was amazing um and i just had james wilkes on the show that that made the game changers movie oh and, wow and uh yeah it was a great conversation because we you know kept it in the middle and if you understand that a plant base is a great baseline and then you know if you add some clean you know holistically raised meat into there as well if you need to then then that's a great great diet and it's so sad when you see these arguments between the extremes that people miss the middle part, which is most people are not eating a lot of clean vegetables and not, you know, eating clean meat. Yep. I agree. And I'll admit I, I do maybe two servings of salmon a week of, you know, wild caught salmon. 
Um, so I'm not a hundred percent, but I, you know, all the day, that's the only non-plant basis just because there are some things you just, you, you do need from that. And it, um, as long as it, you know, like you said, it's clean and it's not grown on a farm in bad conditions and fed what you don't want it to eat. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the, I think the highest, uh, density of, um, what do they call this? Is it centurions? I forget the word. Anyway, people that reach a hundred per capita is Okinawa. And that's a very fish based diet as well. So I think if you're going to have a protein, I think fish is a, a great one to turn to if you can. But again, now you've got to be aware of the large fish like tuna and you get your mercury up and you die from that. So, <laughs> right. And if they're raised in a farm and they're fed crap, you know, they're going to, it's not what you want to put in your body either. So no, but I'm interested because so you did you did IMM before, so this will be yeah. an interesting um, you know study for you. Which I think is exactly what people need to do is just try it for themselves, ignore all the yeah. the ridiculous arguments, and then just see how you feel. And if you felt great for four months and then you switched a little bit, then fantastic. I don't know why anyone argues about it. If you don't like it, don't do it. If you like it, do it. I mean, to each his own. I don't know why it's not like it's going to become policy or anything. No, exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I'm glad that we talked about that. So next question, is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world? Oh, um, let me ponder on that. I don't want to have dead dead silence on your on your program while I'm thinking. Yeah, no problem. And if it's something that you think of after, then you can just let me know post-interview. All right. So in, next one, um, what do you do to decompress? Um, exercise. Is it still running mainly? Uh, running, biking, swimming. Um, and, uh, you know, I, we just got a new plane at flight school. It's aerobatic plane. So taking it out, doing some since pretty exciting yeah but exercise for sure brilliant okay so then the last question um you know we talked about the the website but where can people find um the knights of heroes foundation on social media uh we're on facebook i believe we're on instagram i don't do instagram but our development coordinator is on instagram um but mostly facebook is, is a big presence for us brilliant all right. Well, Steve, I want to say thank you so much. Um, I'm so glad that Chris and Sam connected us. You got a hell of a story. Troy, you know, has obviously got a, a very sad story, but what's spawned out of that, I think, is is amazing. And I'm so glad that we had to have this conversation. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you reaching out and let me be a part of this. Uh, what you're doing is fantastic. I think you're, you know, you're discussing things that need to be discussed, and and you're helping a lot of people through.